1: From KQBD Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, what happens to a country that tells generation after generation of white men they deserve power? That's the question best-selling author Ijoma Aluo poses in her new book, Mediocre: The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. Through a wide-ranging cultural history, Aluo finds that white male supremacy has had devastating consequences on all of us, including white men themselves. She joins us to talk about forging a different path. Ijoma Aluo, next on forum, after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're joined this hour by Ijoma Aluo, whom you may know from her bestseller, So You Want to Talk About Race. In Aluo's new book, she dissects the roots and manifestations of white male identity and power by asking what happens to all of us when generations of white men are told they deserve power, regardless of skill or accomplishments, and when success is defined by status over women and people of color. The book is Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. And Jo Oluo, welcome to Forum. Hi, thanks for having me. Your new book is quite different from your book from 2018, So You Want to Talk About Race, which was almost a, a guidebook of sorts for having difficult conversations about race. It flew off the shelves again in 2020 after the killing of George Floyd. And I've wanted to ask you how you felt about that.
3: Um, you know, I would say um, I felt the same way that many other Black writers who suddenly saw their, their work flying off the shelves felt, which was kind of heartbroken in a way. I don't think any Black writer wants their book to reach the bestseller list because a Black man was murdered. Um, it was troubling, you know, um, and and heartbreaking. And it was, you know, it was really hard to find joy in in that moment. But, you know, we do, of course, want to see people engaging with our work um, so that they can start to do their own work towards, you know, deconstructing racism. But, you know, it was, it was heartbreaking to realize that so many people could have been engaging this whole time and it took such, you know, horrific acts for people to decide to.
1: And do you see this new book, Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America, do you see this as, you know, a necessary advancement of that conversation on race?
3: Uh, Yes, I do think that, you know, this is, it has problems that are similar. We're talking about race and gender, right? And I think that we really can't separate the two when Mm. it comes to American society. And I think that this is looking at, you know, um, not necessarily the conversations we need to have, but how we need to investigate our society and our role in society and what we value as a society. And so I think that, you know, books have different purposes. And so you want to talk about race was kind of a guidebook. And I would say that mediocre is more of a diagnostic
1: Mm. So, so describe the ideas and beliefs at the core of this system that promotes what you call white male mediocrity.
3: So I would say it's important to recognize that this system is first and foremost an offshoot of hypercapitalism in the West. Um, when you have a system where you have to give people an idea of success so that they play their part in it, and yet... You know that the majority of profits and you know measurable well-being from the system are still going to go to top investors and you know uh, people at the very top of power. You have to offer up something else, and what has been offered since the birth of this country to the majority of you know white men in this country has been power, the semblance of power over women and people of color. But you know it only accounts for so much. But when it's all that you have, it's what you cling to. And so what I aim to show is by continuing to define power and success in this way, we harm everyone and we harm our society, our environment in ways that, you know, um, we need to be looking at and, and addressing because it is is quite deadly.
1: Do you see the recent insurrection as a, a manifestation of this idea of this sort of animating force in our system?
3: Absolutely. And I would say that... You know, it was interesting for me to watch it because as this was unfolding, you know, when I was writing my book, I, I became really afraid when I was talking about issues of, you know, militias in the West. You know, and I live in, in, in Washington state, um, looking at, you know, these these areas where white men are kind of holding on to these guns and waiting for this battle that will show that once again, they have power over women and people of color this this kind of thing becomes inevitable when you look at time and time again how often um, there's this rise up against progress that women and people of color are making and so it did not surprise me i mean you know i don't think anyone was prepared for what we saw but it when in looking at our history it didn't surprise me because i've had this sense of foreboding and this kind of general panic and saying why aren't we looking at this and addressing this it is going to erupt violently and i and i don't think this will be the last time we see it either
1: yeah. One of the things that made me think of that was just reading about how one of the things that this creates, this sense of deserving power, you know, wealth, status, regardless of, of whether or not you deserve it, whether or not you have skill or talent, that, that it creates a deep sense of entitlement that's divorced from from merit, but a deep sense of entitlement that, you know, felt like it it took a really brutal form in that insurrection. But I'm also struck by the fact that you, you talk about, you know, varying degrees of this. You, you've talked before about how sort of overt, you know, racist or gendered violence, you know, while horrific, is not necessarily the biggest force or the biggest issue. It, it's rather the way that we all play a role in reinforcing a system of white male supremacy
3: indeed and i think it's important to recognize that this violent is violence is really an enforcement of the status quo that acts in you know everyday ways to really harm women and people of color and white men themselves. And so it's not, the violence is not the end of itself, right? It is to get things back to a place where everyday systems kind of reinforce white male power at the expense of women and people of color. And so we see these everyday systems in our workplaces, in our local government, in our schools. um, And we see the cost of You know, the idea that things will never be built to consider uh, women and people of color, first and foremost, that, you know, we will, our skills and our talents will never be rewarded because even a simple promotion can threaten the identity of white men in an office space. And so... It is, you know, there are so many different ways and so many different impacts to us day in and day out, whether it impacts our ability to feed our family, to feel safe walking down the street, you know, to um, have political representation. That is actually what the violence seeks to reinforce, the idea that, you know, the best jobs will always go to white men, that the security, you know, income security will go to white men, that the best neighborhoods will be, will have be for white men and their families, you know, that any political power, social power will be reserved for white men that our media will reflect the needs of white men and any threat to that is where we see the violence but the violence that you know is impacting our ability to go through the world is that actual day-to-day system
1: it's interesting too the reinforcement of that ideal can also be among people who are saying that they they support the dismantling of it. I mean, I was struck by your analysis of, you know, so-called feminists of the early nineteen hundreds, right? You described Max Max Eastman and, and Floyd Dell, you know, saying that they were all for feminism and then it really being centered on on a desire not to have to be financially responsible for women. <laughs>
3: Yeah, and it's it's amazing to me, you know, I think looking at that, when, when I when I kind of stumbled upon these two men, um, it was just there was this little anecdote in some of my research. And I was like, gosh, these guys sound familiar. You know, I have met these guys and I need to know more and, and delved into it. And that's really the response I've been getting from so many women going, you know, I feel like I, you know, at a at a rally, I run into this guy all of the time who who really was promised that he wouldn't have to do anything and he would be the first to be rewarded for his minimal effort and when he wasn't, you know, kind of became this destructive force within a movement. And I think that part of the, you know, what that stems from is the fact that when we talk about solidarity and when we talk about even doing the right thing, we still often center white men and we talk about the white man who's going to show up and be a hero or who's going to demonstrate personal growth and come out of this better and rewarded. And it really, you know, begins and ends with white men and they, they become the hero of the story, even when in our progressive movements. And that can be incredibly toxic because when they aren't rewarded or when they, you know, aren't push to investigate the ways in which they're bringing toxic behavior into movements, then often they think they've been cheated and they react with the same kind of violent entitlement that we see people who oppose our movements, you know, in people who oppose our movements in the beginning. So, you know, it's important to recognize that so much of our culture really plays into this, to the fact that even if you're doing, you know, the good thing, even in progressive um, efforts, that white men will be centered and rewarded first, and, and for less work.
1: I'm thinking of this line from your book where you write, too many women and people of color have known the rage of a white man who had been pa- patiently waiting in line to be the next president or CEO. And then when they don't get it, as you describe, right, who who tends to get the blame?
3: It ends up being, you know, people like us. And and it's because the people who are denying that, who, who knew that it was never coming, say, it's not this system. It's not the fact that, you know, there's only so much promotion to go around or so much profit to go around. Um, look, look down, you know, that's where you should be paying attention because, you know, it. it it serves the powers that be, that we don't actually look at how incredibly you know, unfair our systems are and how exploitative our systems are. And so the, the narrative then is, if you were entitled to something and you didn't get it, someone stole it from you. And we make easy targets with the narratives of our country. And we make targets that benefit the systems that had never had any intention of making good on their pro- promises to white men in the first place.
1: And when you describe white rage, I I also, you know, couldn't help but think about all the ways that you have been the target of it by trying to push these conversations about race and racism and and to push for for truer stories.
3: I mean, how do you manage that? Sometimes not well, (laughs) you know, I would say. you would hope, you know, there's times I'm like, can I just take a break? Can can I get through the pandemic, please, you know, <laughs> without this. Um, it would be lovely if all of the other ways in which white supremacy comes for black women in this country took a pause if if let's say I was going to be getting threats at my house, right? Um so sometimes I don't deal with it well. I, I mean I, I don't even know what well means. I'm a human being, right? And mm-hmm. and no one wants to live under that sort of stress. But you know also i have I have a loving support system, and I do have the platf, you know the privilege of platform. One thing I've been aware of doing this work, you know, I started doing I started doing this work after Trayvon Martin was murdered. And he was not doing anything other than existing in a space that, you know, was inconvenient and threatening to whiteness. And so what I remember is, is that I'm doing this work because I'm inherently unsafe no matter what. And if I were to stop doing this work, I would still be unsafe. And and the best chance I have is to continue to speak out and try to change our systems because I could stop doing this work today and, you know, try to argue with a police officer and end up dead. Right. I could stop doing this work today and, you know, reject a, a white man's offer on the street and end up abused. And I would be unsafe. So, you know, for me, that's why I do the work.
1: Well, more with you, Jomo Oluo, after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
1: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Ijoma Aluo about her new book, Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America, where she dissects white male supremacy, white male identity, and power. She's also the best selling author of So You Wanna Talk About Race. What are your questions for Ijoma Aluo? Is Luo naming something that you've felt or observed before? What are your thoughts about what you're hearing? Give us a call, 866-733-6786, if you'd like to join the conversation. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And Ijeoma I would actually love if you could read a little bit from your book, from the chapter titled, For Your Benefit in Our Image.
3: I'd be happy to. Along with many other people from marginalized groups, I strive for a day when we will see more people from our communities in leadership and more of the issues impacting our communities addressed by those in power. But I have never had the luxury of shunning everything in our society that does not appear to be built 100% for me. I have had to find a way to enjoy movies and television even when the script is not written for me and the only characters that look like me are peripheral to the main action because I would like to see more than a few movies in my lifetime. I have had to find a way to work in offices that don't see me as management material while still believing that there is a chance I can get a promotion anyway. I have had to study history that erased my culture from its pages and know that it did not actually erase me. I've had to learn laws that weren't written to serve me. I've had to learn to write and appreciate words in a language that was forced on my ancestors. Not only have things in America not been built for me, they have never been built for me. And although that has been physically, financially, politically and psychologically disastrous for my community, I have come to see that it is also damaging to be led to believe that everything should be built for you and that anything built with the consideration of others is inherently harmful to you. It is harmful to the individual who believes it, and it is harmful to every system they interact with that is supposed to be built on coalition. In the lead up to the 2020 election, as with the 2016 election, we were drowning in talk of how we were going to make working and middle-class white men feel included in order to defeat conservative forces. But I must honestly ask, What exactly do people who aren't white men have that could be more inclusive of white men? We do not have control of our local governments, our national governments, our school boards, our universities, our police forces, our militaries, our workplaces. All we have is our struggle. And yet we are told that our struggle for inclusion and equity and our celebration of even symbolic steps towards them is divisive and threatening to those who have far greater access to everything else than we can dream of. If white men are finding that the overwhelmingly white male-controlled system isn't meeting their needs, how did we end up being the problem?
1: That's Ijo Malua reading from her book Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. There is so much to unpack in that passage, but I wanted to first give you a chance if there's anything you wanted to say about the process of writing it.
3: You know, um, it was interesting for me as a writer, it stretched me, which which was wonderful. Um, but you know, it started with you could, if you were writing about white male identity in America, you could write a 100 books. So for me, it started with just an abundance of research and then finding the threads that really told the story so that we could see not only, you know, where we are right now, but how we got there. And I really wanted t- people to see it, to be able to see our history and say, oh, okay, this makes sense now. And it makes sense that if we don't change our, our path, we're going to continue, you know, in this way. And it will get even worse. And so for me, you know, it was really looking at hundreds and hundreds of different stories throughout history. And there were so many other books I could have written. Um, so many stories I kind of had to, you know, cut out for space or time or effectiveness that I think would have been amazing. But, you know, I I really do. I, I love the way the book turned out. I really do.
1: And I really do love that moment in the book, because I feel like in some ways, you're you're saying, see me like this is me, there is nothing that I have that I'm in a position to take from you if you feel like your life isn't giving you everything that you were promised.
3: Yes, and and that's the thing that's always just amazed me. You know, um, is is how often um, white men will will show up to me and so many other women and people of color, and especially women of color, and say, "You, you're the reason why." And we're like, where? What what have I done? Where where have I stored away your power and privilege you were supposed to have? You know, did I bury it somewhere? I don't have it, and I never have. And it's so it's so divorced from reality that it can it, it would be absurd if it weren't, of course, so dangerous.
1: You've said that white supremacy is and always has been a pyramid scheme. Could you explain what you mean
3: by that? Certainly. You know, um, and I think it's important for people to recognize that white men are also victims of white male supremacy in this way. When, when I talk about hypercapitalism, and I talk about that we have a system that pretty much guarantees that, you know, the vast majority of riches and power to be gained from our system has already been taken before the average white man gets a paycheck then what it means is you have to sell them something else and you have to say, buy into this, work hard at this system and you will get a payout. It's coming and and play your part and make sure that other people are playing their part as well and make sure that you're checking on the people who are supposed to be below you and make sure they stay there. So that way you'll be rewarded and you're never going to be. And it really is a pyramid scheme with which you've sold out your own labor. You've sold out your community. You've sold out women and people of color for this idea that, you know, every, every, so many white men I know think that they're just millionaires and billionaires in waiting. And it's not coming. And you've spent all this time and energy upholding a system that was really conning you.
1: And and it's damaging. There's this very damaging sense that there's something wrong with you if you don't get it because of the promises. I was struck by you noting that suicides are, are very high among white men.
3: Absolutely. And, you know, and I think that this is something that we don't address enough when we talk about suicide rates of white men. When we talk about violence in, you know, white households that white men are often perpetrating, what we you know don't link it to is is this sense of failure and when the consistent story is is that you were born worthy um you were you know born deserving a house with two kids and a beautiful wife and a fulfilling job where you got to be the boss and tell people what to do and you deserved respect from other people and you didn't really have to do anything to earn it you you were born deserving and it doesn't come then the reason why that people tell you is well either you know you someone took it from you and you have to be angry at them or you failed and there's something wrong with you and you need to be angry at yourself and both lead to devastating violence and we need to address it because even when we don't see this anger and violence turned on women and people of color we see white men turning it on themselves
1: Let me go to some calls let's go to lucia in san francisco hi lucia
2: hi um hi thank you i wanted to share uh my experience with white supremacy in my like deep personal intimate life um i moved here from mexico about 15 years ago we never speak about race in mexico um and when i came here i started struggling with um work and socialize, and particularly with my love life. And I went to therapy, my partner went to therapy, I started realizing, figuring out all these things that I was doing wrong, I always assume, you know, this is my fault, I need to understand this, I am out of place. And it wasn't until I had a therapist who was not a white person, that I understood the power of race and culture. And and different backgrounds in my situation. And it took me a while and it was only through her eyes that I was able to see that it wasn't that I was wrong. It was just that I was now growing up and living in a culture where there was no room really for my needs and for my wants. And through that then I was able to, to realize that it wasn't you know, that I was wrong. I just needed to change mm. my context. And I, yeah. Yeah. No, I wanted to add though that I see these in my own life and I see it. I am a nurse. I work with a lot of Latino patients and their own experience is very different when their, when their providers are not um, white men or white people in general.
1: Lucia, I really appreciate you sharing your story. I don't know, Joe Malufi. if you wanted to respond to any of the things that Lucia was describing here.
3: You know, I, I, I'm just—I'm so glad, Lucia, that you're that you're able to see that because that sort of gaslighting happens to people of color and women, especially women of color, all of the time. That really says what's happening to you isn't really happening. You must be the problem. Um, the, the, there is no system in place. It isn't by design. You know, every everything should be fine for you, and if it's not, then you know you're imagining it or you've done something wrong. And so, part of what I hope this book is a testament to for women and people of color is that this is by design, that these things really are happening and, and it is devastating and you have every right to demand better.
1: let Thanks. Let me go to caller John in Burlingame. Hi, John.
4: Yes. Hi. Um, I applaud this book. Um, I need, I, need, I will buy it and read it. Um, I'm a white man, uh, 45 years old. Um, uh, uh, lots of white privilege in my background. I'm a father of three sons, beautiful sons 13 11 and 7 and uh, the author is uh, raising great points about um, the gaslighting that goes rampant under our patriarchal system um, i'm am um, studying to be a therapist um, uh, and i'm a year into that program in the past i you know as a lawyer and trying to go into politics trying to uh, make the world better um, but i see how even coming from privilege we need to use our use that, we need to own it own, it, own it, use the privilege for better um, I'm a feminist, um, but that doesn't engage men and boys. And I hope to help create space for men and boys to be uh, more in touch with their feelings and to use that to help the world uh, uh, and engage it. Um, uh, there's there's so much to do here, and thank you for the book.
1: Well, well, John, thanks for saying that. I mean, Joe Malua, when I when I hear John talking about men and boys more in touch with their feelings, I, I'm also remembering, you know. The, the descriptions that you have about expectations of masculinity and how it plays into all of this.
3: Yes, absolutely. And you know, I'm the mother of two boys and they aren't white boys, but the expectation of masculinity is not something they're exempt from. And the harm it does for them, you know, the amount I have to fight to protect their ability to feel, you know, and to connect in a real way with other people is is it's so harmful and so i want people to recognize if you're a white man and you're saying something is wrong that this work can be done from a place of love and from a a belief that there can be better and more for white men real connection and real sense of identity that isn't you know grounded in this idea of power over other people and that is a much healthier and more whole way to live
1: And this listener writes, while we see many people of color and especially women of color in positions of leadership under this new administration, is solely representation enough? Where do we go from here to support the needs of black, indigenous and people of color and work toward an anti-racist society that expands beyond mere representation?
3: Well, I think it's important first to recognize that representation is not just a face that looks like you in government, right? Representation is people who represent your needs. And so it's really important to look at what the needs are in your community for communities of color, um, for women in your community, for trans people, for disabled people, for all groups of people who are really harmed by white male supremacy in this country. And say, real representation means that what are activists in our neighborhoods, you know, what are what our parents of color in our schools are saying they need is being supported and we're seeing change. So that's really where I want people to listen. I want people not to to look at just do we have a a black face or a brown face in our government, but are we enabling the leaders that we elect with our own actions to be able to put forth systemic changes that will, you know, improve our lives? And are we having these conversations in our workplaces, in our schools, in our churches, to really make change where it matters?
1: You know, it's, thinking about Joe Biden, this administration that uh, the, the last commenter was talking about, one of the things that I've been thinking about is, you know, Trump represented such a retrenchment, right, that in many ways, it's made Biden someone who is viewed as real progress. And I can understand how it can be viewed that way because of what we've been through. And and yes, he is appointing um, people of color and he is running an administration that looks very, very different from the previous administration that we've had. But also, at the same time, you know, we, we have sort of gone back to this idea of who should hold power in 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 a way where we're trying to appease broadly, right, an electorate that views white males as the people who should be in power. So it makes me wonder, like, are we in a loop? Or are we on a track that's that's truly moving forward, that's truly making progress around these ideas that you're trying to address, around this system that you're trying to dismantle?
3: You know, what? where I look at this is every day we have opportunity, right? Um, And whether we rise to that opportunity is the question to ask. I mean, right now, all that, you know, what the administration is doing, which is important, and I'm not trying to undercut it, is undoing some of the more egregious harm that the previous administration did. But I started my work under Obama, right? There were things that needed to be done before the last administration came in and really tried to entrench this uber violent, you know, white male supremacy in this country, um, there was still so much that needed to be done. So the question is, is do we rise to this opportunity or do we let it stay at basics or just unwinding some of the worst harm that was added on to, you know, the harm that was already crushing uh, women and people of color in this country? And so it's about what we do with the opportunity and whether or not we ourselves demand more and and really look at it and say, you know what, we're not going to keep centering white men at the expense of women and people of color. And maybe we will not build coalition with people who, who define power by harming women and people of color, that there is no coalition really to be found that doesn't sacrifice women and people of color. And so we're not going to do that. And that's, you know, it's whether we decide to do that. And I'd say it's too early to tell whether we are.
1: Well, we're talking with Ijoma Luo about her new book, Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. She's also author of the best-selling book, So You Want to Talk About Race. Join the conversation by calling 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. What are your questions for Ijoma Luo? Is she naming something that you felt or observed before? Noelle asks, how are we supposed to reassure white men that sharing power and recognition with the rest of us is not a zero-sum game? We're about to come up on a break, but we can start your answer here and and get more into it afterwards. But what are your thoughts on what she's asking?
3: You know, I would start by saying I really have little interest in doing that. Um, I think that white men can discover it when they don't, you know, when, when the world doesn't end. And I think that maybe that's a lesson you learn from experience, that you can, you can, rise to the challenge that you can see change and it doesn't pull you apart. I think that this idea that we have to wait for white men to sign on to the change that we need to save the lives of people of color in this country to, you know, give full citizenship and equity to women and people of color in this country is an in- reinforcement of white male supremacy. And instead we should have faith that white men can grow and adjust to a new system.
1: Again, we'll have more with you, Jo Maluo, after the break. You're listening to Forum. I'm a Kim. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Ijeoma Oluo finds that white male supremacy has had devastating consequences on all of us, including white men, and she joins us to talk about forging a different path. Her book is Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America, and you can join the conversation by calling 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, or email your questions or thoughts to forum at kqed.org. And let me go to Susie in Alameda. Hi, Hi, Susie,
6: Hi. My um, comment is I really appreciate the author putting the phrase out there, women and people of color, because that is the essence of what our problem has been. That's the suppressed segments of this society. And we have so many brilliant women that aren't speaking out and speaking up for the fact that we women are also part of the problem we white women i'm a white woman we're part of the problem we don't speak out against this we put up with a lot and um you know even when we raise our sons it's like heaven forbid if they show any sensitivity you know toward women or toward people of color because it bucks the system so mm. i just congratulate her on putting that phrase out there i think it's way more powerful than black lives matter because um it's about women and all people of color that we need to we get we need to get our voices heard and to make some changes. I appreciate John, the fellow who's becoming a therapist, calling and saying he's raising sons and he also gets it. He totally gets it that mm-hmm. this is where the changes need to be made. And well, Susie, I just applaud this author tremendously.
1: Susie, some of what you're saying is being echoed in this comment from Jim, who writes, can your guests comment on how white women empower white men in their racist views? Why do so many women contribute to this dysfunction? Ichiomoduo. Hi,
3: um, Yeah, I, I would say there's a couple of things I, I want to say. It is really important when we recognize that um, white male supremacy impacts so many people, But there is a special devastation in the ways in which it has impacted Black people and Indigenous peoples in this country. And we can't ignore that. We can't ignore the extreme violence that falls upon these populations. And so Black Lives Matter is just, you know, an acknowledgement of that and that, you know, we need to matter in our systems. And so I I do not in any way seek to discount that and the importance of that. And it has been very important to my work. Um, As to talking about, you know, white women and the role they play, I think that part of what, you know, we see here is that sometimes Sometimes, often, white women will say to themselves, consciously or subconsciously, my closest chance at power is what my husband can get, what my children can get, right, what my brother can get, and therefore will not only sell out other people of color and other women, um, but their own values, you know, and their own chance at real liberation. I think we need to recognize that there is no woman's liberation while white supremacy exists because white male supremacy requires um, the oppression of both women and people of color in order for it to succeed. And also I would say, you know, while this book focuses on racism and sexism in our society, that this archetype of power also Deeply impacts disabled people of all races and genders, um, non-binary people, transgender people, queer people, anyone who kind of falls out, falls to the side of or outside of, you know, this notion of white male power.
1: Well, let me go to caller Trish now in Sebastopol. Hi, Trish.
6: Uh, good morning. I'm just wondering if if the author could please elaborate for me on the dangers that she refers to in the title of her book.
1: Yes. You know, we did start talking a little bit to Joma about sort of the aggression as a manifestation, the blame or needing to, to look at other people to blame for the reason that you're not getting what it is that you've been told that you deserve. But I am wondering if you want to Underline a few more sort of manifestations of this system, in addition to the way that it harms white men, which we talked about too, but but there are so many (laughs) that you talk about in your book.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And and I would say, you know, the book talks about, you know, many different areas of our society. We talk about harm to the environment and the idea of, you know, when we consistently put down this notion that white men are masters of their domain. Um, and, you know, that everything, including the land and the animals and the people on the land are theirs to control and use at their at their whim. We see devastation of the environment. We see the harm done in education systems built to maintain, you know, white male power. We see harm done in our government. We see harm in our workplaces that consistently undervalues and undercuts and excludes women and people of color and the ineffective, the ineffectiveness of our definitions of corporate power, the way we assign it to white men and how often that can really, you know, lead to the demise of corporations that cost many people their jobs. You know, there are just so many areas in our society with which we see this phenomenon doing great harm to a lot of people.
1: I mean one of the things that you talk about is is sort of the lack of incentive to to really take hard positions because of fear of losing this power that is so fragile when you start to unpack what it really is right and and i'm thinking about the examples i mean we have countless present day examples now of of republican enablers of trump for example and his rigged election lie um who who get to ma- who incited an insurrection right who get to maintain political power you talk about joe biden waffling on his support of bussing i mean can you just talk about the broader consequences of that
3: yeah, so, you know, I think it's really important to recognize that um, white male supremacy absolutely will bring consequences on a white men who deviate from the norm. They won't be as stark as what women and people of color face, but it does absolutely police its own and says, you know, do not try to change this system. This is your path to success. And so even, you know, when we look at, you know, politically and how ridiculous it is to see um, all of the different, you know, the politicians that Trump personally attacked on the right now coming to his defense because they don't want to seem Weak. And he is, you know, Trump has put himself forward as kind of the archetype of manhood and and white male power in this country. And so they don't want to seem like they are betraying their own and betraying the status quo, even though they've personally experienced the harm done. You know, we are seeing right now this extreme instability in our society caused by this. And yet people know that, hey, this is my only chance of power, and people are really afraid that if they let go to something else, that the person who's appointed to lead our new way won't be them, and it won't look like them. And then where would they be? And so a lot of times, you know, there is a fear that binds white men to these harmful behaviors and harmful systems.
1: The other thing that you talked about is how it rewards mediocrity. I, I mean, in, in seeing, for example, white men unfit for extraordinary positions of power that then wreak havoc on us all
3: absolutely and you know we can we can talk about our you know um highest offices all day but we see this all of the time in workplaces we see this in ceos who are just you know charismatic white men who make disastrous decisions that don't don't really lead to success um you know we see this in our cultural personalities that we look up to and want to be like and and you know in the book shows time and time again example after example um where we really are saying if you live up to this you will be a success and those are the people that we promote and we see this also in you know the way in which we vote and the way in which we kind of follow leaders in our culture we say you know what that seems like a guy who's a strong leader that's a guy i'd like to have a beer with and you're not actually evaluating skills and you're not actually looking at what, you know, traditionally has shown to be successful, which are skills like cooperation and listening and empathy. Those are things that we hold up as prime examples of leadership and strength in our society. And therefore, we don't reward it when people exhibit these skills, even though it would be beneficial to us all.
1: And let me go to caller Nina in San Francisco. Hi, Nina.
7: Hi. Um, I really appreciated hearing from the therapist who was bringing this awareness into his work. Um, In 2016, um, my marriage was uh, at a very low point. Um, And then when Donald Trump got elected, um, a lot of the issues that were kind of nagging me became clear, and and a lot of them were uh, around this this white male supremacy. I'm a woman of color from a collectivist background, and he is actually from Donald Trump's hometown. Um, He's a white man. And I realized a lot of the structures that he grew up with and expectations were in direct opposition to my expectations about um, you know, empathy and collectivism and, and mutuality. And um, as good of a person he is and as charismatic, extremely charismatic, um, I think some of those expectations that he grew up with growing, growing up around a lot of wealth um, and entitlement, um, though that was not really what he wanted per se but you know that was the the example for him um really kind of highlighted where we were not connecting and why we were not connecting for me um and unfortunately we're getting divorced now but um that is something I've, i've wanted recognition of you know in in terms of how it plays out in relationships and my particularly interracial relationship
1: nina thank you for for sharing that i appreciate that a lot Um, Let me go to Laura next in Portola Valley. Hi, Laura.
6: Hi. Uh, The need for control and anger transcends race. We are a culture of emotionally stuffed people, shown by how trendy being vulnerable is these days. Being vulnerable means just be yourself, an action suppressed by so many among us, especially by men of all races. This leaves us only one socially acceptable emotion left, anger, which pops out of us like a zit in the form of rage and aggression.
1: Whoa. Um, Well, let me, I don't know if you have a reaction to either of those comments, Ijoma, before I read a couple more that we're getting.
3: Um, You know, one thing I would say is that when we look at, you know, patriarchal norms, that, you know, the norm of anger and control and power, of course, transcends race, but... The entitlement that is given to whiteness in this country is something that doesn't. And I think that's where we see a difference in levels of harm that can even be done if someone, you know, wanted to do harm by race. And and I think that's why it's important that we look at both race and gender in this problem.
1: We're talking with Ijoma Luo, her new book, Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Mike writes, great discussion. I'm a white guy, dad of two sons. Author is spot on. My observation from experience, we're operating under a system that requires women and people of color to stick their necks out to reform our racist systems. Until white men and other of the most privileged are willing to step forward, take risks, acknowledge that this is a problem for white people to make right, we won't be able to move forward. I want to couple this comment with actually another listener's comment. AJ writes... This is so insightful, and yet I am at a loss for how to share these insights to those who don't experience them. I find that people place the onus on the person experiencing the bias and absolve themselves from their own role in the discrimination. I really cannot see how to convey these ideas to people who most need to understand, even to those who would otherwise be receptive. Any thoughts for E.J.? Yeah,
3: that's a great question you know, um, and and I, I get that. I get that people get stuck on that. And I would say there's a couple of things. One, um, you know, it isn't necessarily your obligation if you're a woman or person of color to win other people over because the information is out there. It's not just books. There's, you know, people have been talking about this for a long time. But we have relationships with people. We are in community with people, with white men that we care about. And, you know, white men who may get some things wrong, but don't know what to do. And one tip that I recommend is to look at and, and to imagine for yourself what change would actually look like and offer up that, that image. Because what we often see is a lack of imagination. We have been told that this is the only system we can have. This is the only way we can define power and success in this In this society and what we need to do is start imagining new realities and then look systemically and say what's stopping us systemically from doing it and make that change that change doesn't actually require everyone to sign on there are enough women and people of color who know that something is wrong that if we can come together about systemic change we can actually make some but then also we can offer that up relation relationship wise and say you know this workplace could look like this and offer up that vision. My relationship to you could look like this. This church could look like this. This is what it would look like if we were to let these harmful norms go and come together. This is what I imagine we could all accomplish together. I think we have to start telling that story and we need to get people to sign on and we need to lead by example of how we ourselves have investigated where we've upheld these harmful behaviors and are letting it go so that other people can see. You know, I used to vote this way. I used to engage with media this way. I used to look to these people in meetings or talk over people in these spaces. Um, This is where I used to spend my money. And now I know where I've been upholding harmful systems and I'm making different choices. Would you like to join me?
1: You know, Bonnie writes, I'm worried about backlash, violence of white male power structures. How can we protect our meager gains and make progress as a united group, women, people of color, against white male supremacy?
3: That is such a valid fear. And, and I think if there's one thing that's clear in reading my book is the backlash exists and, and is inevitable. It will happen. So the question then is, um, one, you know, how can we minimize its impact? And I'd say, you know, we do that by being prepared and knowing it's coming and working systemically to minimize the power that it has over us, right? So looking at, you know, I could have easily seen, I think a lot of us could have seen that there was a huge chance of uprising around you know the inauguration right that is a backlash against white men feeling like they had lost power we could have been more prepared for that we're having so many discussions around that but we can also be prepared if a woman is being promoted in an office we we have so many studies showing how white men react when a woman or a person of color gets a, a big promotion in a workspace you prepare the space and you say what can we do to minimize the impact but also we have to you know recognize it's coming and really affirm our dedication to pushing through. There is nothing we can do that will make white men less threatened by progress other than getting them to live through the progress and realize that they survived and it didn't actually ruin their lives and so we have to keep pushing through because if we back off which is often what you know the kind of request is and we see this right after each election oh we better back off we don't want to you know anger white man and even right now when we're talking about the impeachment there's this talk that if we push towards actual accountability and justice there'll be a backlash well of course there will be But we have to keep pushing forward because that need for accountability doesn't go away. And if we were to pick it up six months from now, the backlash is still waiting. So we move, we need it. And we say, we are dedicated to this and we're going to keep pushing forward. We're not going to pause. We're going to try to be prepared, but we know that it's coming. And we know that our dedication is stronger than that.
1: I think in a lot of ways, you're, you're answering a question that I had when I read an interview that you gave to the Washington Post where you said you recognize that white supremacy will outlive you. And and I couldn't help but wonder, you know, like, how do you, how do you define success then? Like, what will it look like before, you know, the end of our days as women of
3: color? You know, I think that it's important to recognize that there are two interesting things that happen when we talk about white male power. And when we talk about women and people of color, and especially, especially people of color is that, White men get to be individuals, right? Every white man who participates in a harmful system is treated like an individual. We talk about his potential, his growth, his, you know, chance to, you know, for redemption. And yet women and people of color don't get to exist as individuals. We, we are just a blanket story. But we are individuals who are worthy of respect and love and safety and this means that even though white supremacy will outlive me part of how i affirm that my life matters that black lives matter you know that we are human beings that women and people of color are human beings of fundamental worth is by saying that every progress we can make that improves the individual stories of women and people of color in this country is worthwhile and we have to find victory in where we create room to thrive and grow as a society, and that each of us are worthy. And so it is not just about the collective, it is about our individual value as human beings.
1: Higeoma Aluo, thank you for your book, and thank you for talking with us today. Thank you, it was a pleasure. It's called Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. Thanks to Ariana Prell for producing this segment, and to our listeners for their thoughts and stories. I'm Mina Kim, you're listening to Forum.